Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Let's dig into Acts chapter 18. It's about uh, this time in the story we're dialing in. Luke, who writes Acts, is helping us watch what happens in Paul's life. And this part of Acts is so exciting because it's loaded with stories and it's real history. He's following Paul on his second missionary journey. He takes whatever he can carry with him and he leaves Syrian Antioch a couple chapters ago and he heads out and he makes his way to Europe and he starts off with one traveling buddy, a man by the name of Silas. And then... They add another person to their team in their first city, a young man by the name of Timothy, right? Yeah, Barney went the other way. Timothy's, Timothy's is with Barney, and John Mark went, uh, went to the islands and went that direction. Paul and Silas, they go to uh, Lystra and Derby. They pick up a young man named Timothy who's called to ministry. He joins the group, has a little surgical procedure we've already talked about, and then he heals up, and they keep going. They get to the port city. And they add a fourth guy to their team, a doctor, historian, author, writer guy by the name of Luke. So he's four strong. He's got a dream team. I don't even know how dreamy of a team he has. They get on the boat, they cross into Europe. And there's a pattern we see. They go into a town. They find, where do they usually try and find? They find a synagogue because they're going into a town to talk to people about Jesus and they're trying to start with what I would call the lowest hanging fruit first. Do you think at least if I can find some type of religious place, that might be the least hostile, most interested audience I could go to? So he goes there first. If the town doesn't have a synagogue, he finds, he goes to the marketplace or in this case, he finds a little prayer meeting by the river. He does God's work. He preaches the gospel. Some people get saved in, in the town. And this happens in Philippi, this happens in Thessalonica, it happens in Berea. But what usually happens, he starts the work, gets a little bit of good news, and then opposition right away, right? He ends up usually next in jail or beaten or on the wrong end of a manhunt or run out of town entirely. It happens in Philippi. So they run him out of town to Thessalonica. He preaches there for a short period of time until they run him out of town to Berea. And things are going well there until the Thessalonians find out and the mob runs to Berea and run him out of Berea. So there's this pattern that he's seeing in this second missionary journey. Not only that, but his team is getting smaller and smaller and smaller after every city. He leaves Luke in Philippi because the new Philippians don't have anybody to disciple them. They don't have the New Testament because it hasn't been written. It's being written during their lifetime. They've just found salvation through Jesus. They've, they've brought their simple faith and their simple repentance and they put their faith in Jesus. Jesus has saved them. They've been baptized, but they haven't been discipled yet. And Paul's thinking it's more important for them to have their needs met than for me to have my needs met. And so I'll leave Luke here. And the three of them move on to Thessalonica. And then the three of them move on to Berea. And then when Paul leaves Berea and goes to Athens, he leaves Silas and Timothy behind in Berea, to keep discipling those new Christians. And now Paul's by himself. And that's not normal for him. He hasn't gone solo yet in his missionary journey. And then we saw where he ends up last week. He ends up in Athens. And there he went to the synagogue, and he also went to the mall, and he also went to the universities. He talked to the religious people, 
the citizens out walking about, and then he spoke in front of the most highly intellectual, educated people in the city. And it kind of went so-so. And he kind of hit a dead end there, and now he leaves Athens on foot for the next city. Now, this next city is pretty close to Athens. It's one day's walk away, but it is 20 times the population that Athens was. Much bigger city. City that was, you could call it famous or infamous. It was noteworthy and notorious. It was both. Um, And let's read about what happens. Acts chapter 18, first six verses. Then Paul left Athens and went to, you see where he goes next? Corinth. What do you call a citizen of Corinth? They were called Corinthians. Now, when you hear Corinthians, if you've ever looked through the table of contents in the front of your Bible, have you seen the word Corinthians up there? You'll see it twice. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Those are two letters written by Paul at a point in the future after this story we're reading right now, that he writes later in life to the church and the Christians who live in the city of Corinth. He's written more than two letters to them because in his first letter, he refers to other letters they've written back and forth. But I want you to know that he's going to form a relationship with Christians in this city that will last the rest of his life. So he goes to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, who was born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. That's not a typo. It's a husband and a wife. Husband's name's Aquila. Wife's name's Priscilla. It rhymes. That's cute, right? It's Aquila and Priscilla. You know, just guess, you know, they always had a running joke at all their parties, but their names rhymed. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar, that was the emperor at the time, he deported all Jews from Rome. So you need to know that anti-Semitism or the hatred of Jews was pretty common across the Roman Empire and in Greek culture, in some cities more than others. But the reason, the precipitating reason how Aquila and Priscilla end up leaving Italy and landing in Corinth was they were deported because of their ethnicity. So they, they're here in Corinth. Verse 3, Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. The Greek word literally translated means workers with leather. So making tents out of leather was normal back then. They made tents out of animal hides and leather, so that was normal. They also would have designed and made other things. So we learn that Paul shared a similar trade with Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 4. Each Sabbath, now this will be a shocker to those of you that are with us so far. Where does Paul find himself every Sabbath? At the synagogue. In another pattern. Every city he goes to, if there's a synagogue, he goes there. Because it gives him a platform to teach because he was educated as a rabbi. And if you came into town and went to the synagogue, it was their tradition to defer to whoever had. If there was a rabbi in town who had the most education, you'd be invited to speak. And so he used that part of his education and his training as grounds to be able to stand up and teach from their scriptures about the Messiah that the what we call the Old Testament that the Jews called the scripture. He would use the scriptures, but he would use the scriptures to talk about the Messiah and then he would tell them about a man named Jesus who lived 16 years prior who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about being a Messiah and that now they don't have to look for him. He is here 
and they can put their faith in him and have salvation through him. He is now setting up his kingdom through Jesus by the means of salvation. So he was trying to convince. Now, that's an interesting phrase. You're either convincing someone or you're trying to convince them. You know there's a difference between convincing someone and trying to convince them? Have you ever been in a situation where it would be true of you that you were, I was trying to convince them. You know what that means? That means you're unsuccessful in your efforts. Yet father, yet listen, yet as a child trying to convince your father, here's my, where I relate to it, Steph, is when I'm trying to get my 10-year-old and my 5-year-old to eat something. And I was, my wife and I will be like, do you want to try a bite of this? Yesterday she made, I brought home a London broil from the farmer's market the other day, and she put it in this thing called an Instapot. First of all, it's not instant, I found out. It's this miracle device. You put, like, raw stuff in there and pour liquids and throw, like, leaves and things in there, and you put the lid on, and then there's this timer. 30 minutes from now, your house is going to smell like heaven. And then, like, in our case, like, six hours later, Oh, man, you eat. And it was this, it was London broil like I had never had it before. I usually think that that is tough and not normally a cut of meat that we go for, but I was trusting the Instapot. That thing did wonders, and we're like having a great time eating the London broil. And I'm trying to convince the five-year-old to try this delicious thing. And he says, no, no, thank you. Buddy, it's delicious. No, I don't like it. You've never tasted it. It is logically irresponsible. My exact words to my five-year-old. It is logically irresponsible for you to say you don't like the taste of something you've never tasted. Mic drop. He picks up the mic and says, but I looked at it. And the 10-year-old who's supposed to be helping us out says, well, Dad, you know on Chopped, the judges always say you eat with your eyes first. (laughs) I'm trying to convince him that this is delicious. And he just looks at me and just says, no, I know I won't like it because of how it looks. And it makes no sense. I mean, and he applies the same thing to other delicious things like mashed potatoes. Like, how can you not like mashed potatoes? And I'm like, am I a bad parent for making my child eat something that has next to no nutritional value whatsoever? But they're delicious if they're made right. They're delicious. You understand the futility of trying to convince. And even though you're making your case, they're just like, nope, you can throw whatever at me. I'm going to hit it right back to you. Paul's trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And the language we're using is that Paul, who might be the best convincer who's ever lived, Maybe, right? You, you might even say statistically more effective than Jesus was a convincer at the time. Now, the advantage is Jesus hadn't done the full work yet. And so after he did the work, Paul didn't have to do any of the work. He just had to tell people about what Jesus did. So you needed both of these things to work. But Paul was pretty good at convincing people about the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. But it basically sounds like every Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and he's trying to convince the Jews and the Greek. And when it wasn't the Sabbath time, what was Paul doing? He's working a side job. He's, he's not giving his full time to the ministry. He can't. Why does Paul have to start working as a tent maker in Corinth? 
What's his motivation for doing that? Think, think really hard. Thank you. To earn a living. It, yes. This is a big deal in the Jewish community. You can read through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Working hard and earning your keep was a big deal. They did not look highly upon people who felt entitled to get income if they had the ability to work and they didn't. In fact, Paul later on says, if there's somebody in your family who has the ability to work and they're not working and they're trying to live off of your paycheck, don't let them eat. And some of you are like, that guy's extreme. That's just how it was. So Paul, as a preacher and as a missionary, if he wasn't working on the side, then where would he get paid? Where would he get salary or benefits or housing or meals from? If it wasn't from tent making, where's the other source that he'd get it from? From church. Awesome. He goes to Corinth, and there, where's the church? There isn't one. So he could either say, I'm going to go to a town that can afford to pay me a stipend while I plant a church here, or for a time being, I'm going to have to be bivocational. I'm going to have to rely on a trade. He grew up in a Jewish family, and in Jewish families, fathers were to teach their kids a trade. So his dad would have taught him how to work with leather. Leather working was a pretty transportable, portable occupation. All you needed, you could carry in a little bag. You needed something to cut with. In fact, little interesting fact. Have you ever heard the phrase Paul includes in one of his later letters to rightly divide the word of truth? Have you ever heard that? Okay, read the New Testament. There's good stuff in there. Okay, but Paul says it's up to teachers to rightly divide the word of truth, in other words, to interpret it straightly and accurately and correctly. To rightly divide is actually a Greek design word, and it means to cut a straight line in fabric or leather. And so he's using some of his terms that even tumble into his letters. But you could, if you had a couple needles and some thread and some devices that you could, you know, some tools that you could cut with, you could pretty much go to any city and find the raw materials of leather or fabric, and you could use your tools, cut them into design, stitch them together, and sell them. That's what he did. So, every, so he's doing that during the week, and on the Sabbath, he was at the synagogue trying unsuccessfully to convince the Jews and the Greeks. Verse 5, and after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. Now, does that sound good to you if you've been reading through here? He's been separated from them for a while. He goes into a city all by himself. He has, he has his trade. He doesn't have a church, but already God starts providing for him things like friends. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, so he makes a friendship. They give him a place to stay, and they're able to practice their trade together. They can share their faith together. And now Silas and Timothy show up, and this is like a shot in the arm to Paul. They come down from Macedonia. They were ministering in the churches there that Paul started. They had finished up their first round of discipleship, had left the church a little bit better than they were when they got there, and now they're catching up with Paul. And you get this little detail. Paul spent how much now? All his time preaching the word after Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth. Now, how, what must have happened here in order for Paul, now that they arrive from those churches, to be able to stop his part-time job and work fully preaching the word? What must have happened through Silas and time? <laughs> Talking is hard today. Silas and Timothy's visit. Yes. If you, and I don't have time to show all the verses to you, but if you read through the rest of the New Testament and you track down some of Paul's thank you notes he writes, 
He thanks these churches for their ongoing financial support of his ministry. So it, all the evidence suggests that Silas and Timothy not only brought him comfort and encouragement through their friendship, but they bring him financial support from these other churches that enable Paul to cover his expenses, put more time into teaching the word and preaching the word and less time having to work on the side to support his income. Now, it's important to note, Paul is, Paul is not anti receiving support from churches. He's not against pastors receiving support. In fact, if you, again, if you read through some of his other letters, he argues in favor of churches compensating the people who teach them the word and teach them the Bible. In one case, he says, why is it that you have no problem with all these other apostles getting paid, but you, you get bent out of shape when it's me and Barnabas getting paid? Don't we deserve the same type of salary expectations that other people do? In another letter, he says, the people who teach you the Bible and take care of your soul are worth double salary. All pastors love that passage, Right? <laughs> But what he's really, he's not so much trying to give a pay grade that's supposed to be practiced. What he's saying is this, you don't think twice about giving the person a salary that makes your latte, that provides your electricity, that, you know, keeps the lights on and, and checks out the groceries that you pay for. The people that take care of your body, you pay them, you know, you pay the, the doctors who take care of you. You pay the people who build your house. You pay the people who take care of your apartment. And he says, Shouldn't the people who take care of your soul also have a right to earn a living for providing that service to you? So he's in favor of that, but he also recognizes that he's not going to give up on doing ministry in a new city simply because they can't start off by giving him a salary. He learns another skill. He has a trade, and he uses that, and then at whatever point that he's able to, but he also realizes that every hour he spends making a tent is taking some of his time, effort, and energy away from preaching the word. And so Silas and Timothy show up. Now Paul can spend all his time preaching the word. And what was he talking about? He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He's basically saying the king, the promised one, the Christ that's, that we're supposed to be looking for in the Old Testament, guess what? He's come. I'll give you a date. Paul is likely in Corinth from the winter of 49 AD until the spring of 52 AD. In 52 AD, we know there was a leadership change, a governmental change in Corinth where they brought on a new proconsul by the name of Gallio, and we'll read about him in a couple verses. And, and so if you back that up by a year and a half, we get to the winter of 49 AD. So it's probably 16 years after, 16, 17 years, less than two decades after Jesus was crucified. And he's saying, the king has come. He's establishing his kingdom. It's not necessarily the physical kingdom that you're waiting for. It is a spiritual kingdom. And he has opened that kingdom to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And there's only one way in. It's through the king. It's through King Jesus. And it comes by surrendering to his lordship through simple faith and simple repentance. Jesus is the Messiah. He's here, and you can come into relationship with him. That was his message. Verse 6. But when they opposed him and insulted him, the message was not going over well, or so it seems. He's preaching and preaching and preaching. He's preaching to the same congregation every week. And at first they're indifferent, and now they're opposed. In fact, if you do the Greek homework here in the original language, it says they opposed Paul and blasphemed Jesus, which he took as an insult. In other words, what sets Paul off, he's going to lose it here in just a second. He's going to throw out a holy tirade. I know some of you don't think such a thing exists, and that's not licensed for you to try this out. 
Okay, It's a really sharp line to cut. But what he's saying is, what really ticks him off and where he really draws the line has nothing to do with their insults against him, but they crossed a line and they're insulting Jesus. They opposed him and insulted him. Here's what Paul does. Now imagine if YouTube were around when he does this. He's in the synagogue. He shakes the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is on your own heads now, congregation. I'm innocent, and from now on, I'm out of here. I'm going to go, and I'm going to preach to the Gentiles because you people, God's people, I've preached the truth to you, and you don't do it, and you don't believe it. Now, I'm sure if you go on YouTube, you could probably see some pastors throwing some tirades. Could you imagine if something like this happened in the modern day? Where a pastor says, I have preached and preached and preached and preached and preached the truth of the word to you over and over and over again. And I have been patient and I have waited and you've heard and you heard and you heard and you completely don't do it. You disagree, you get angry, you do nothing, you nod and you shake your head and you make your jokes and you crack jokes. That's all fine, but now you've crossed the line. And you could hear one person in the congregation, you're fired. He says, you can't fire me, I quit, you know. <laughs> he throws things, he kicks something. I don't know that he does all that. But he basically says, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with this congregation. Not only that, your blood is on your head now because you know better and you've heard better and you won't do it. So now your blood's on your own head. Could you imagine a pastor losing it like that, but it's not really losing it? He's telling them truth in a way that they probably don't want to hear. And he says, I'm innocent. And why does he say that? Because I had a responsibility to preach and preach and preach to you. And I preached to you even when you disagreed, even when you insulted, but now you've crossed the line. Therefore, when I stand before God, I'm innocent of your blood. You won't be able to say to God one day, well, Paul came by and didn't tell us. He was more concerned with running his business and making money and dropping by. And he was here, God, and I couldn't hear. So it's really on him. He says, I'm innocent. Your blood's on your own head. He says, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I bet they want to hear from me. I bet they want to hear about Jesus. I'm out of here. I am gone. So what's going on here? This is all happening in what city? Corinth. Corinth was a bad place. It had a reputation. Now, it was located, and every time I say this word, I feel like I'm, I'm talking with a lisp. I'm trying not to. It was located on an isthmus, and it was strategically located. You could sail around that piece of land jutting out into the water, but almost every ship that went around there sank. It was three and a half miles wide. They had two ports and what they figured out was all these trade ships, it was actually less expensive and more lucrative for them to pull into the one port, get the boat out of the water, put it on rollers, and roll that joker three and a half miles to the other port. So east to west, this became constant, constant business. Business people and merchants that had a lot of money were regularly stopping for a day in Corinth with all their money, and a great nightlife, and then they kept on going. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. They were also situated on a north-to-south trade route because of that. So they're at this intersection. They were known for their architecture, but they were mostly known for their sexual immorality. 
famous and for getting drunk and for loose moral living. There is a slang term in Greek, and I have to say this delicately. In the modern vernacular, there's a lot of slang, inappropriate terms that you might have heard, though you've probably never used them to describe someone who might have questionable sexual activity, might dress a certain way, or might have a certain reputation, and you'll hear ugly words thrown around that say, well, he acts like a this, or she dresses like a that. That type of a word, they had a word for that in Greek, and it had the word Corinthian buried right in the middle of it. If someone called you that, it was as culturally offensive as someone calling you one of those other names today. Every time that there was a Greek play and there was a a character in the play who was supposed to portray someone from Corinth, they were always drunk. That's the reputation that you had. Their city's primary goddess that they worshipped was Aphrodite. Do you know what she was the goddess of? Say that again. Love, right. So up on the Acro-Corinth, this giant hill, there was a temple to Aphrodite where there were employed 1,000 priestesses. They were actually prostitutes. And here's what they would do. Those 1,000 priestesses dressed as their trade every day would go down from the temple and walk through the city and practice their trade. And they would exchange sex for money. And they would bring all that money back into the temple. And that was one of the ways that they funded all this stuff in the city. was through that booming trade business. They had a very transient population. Which means people were always passing through. Now, there's a lot of cities today you could compare it to. But you'd have to amp them all up a little bit. I mean, I heard some people say, well, that sounds like what Vegas could, you know, like Las Vegas. Las Vegas has a nickname, Sin City. And we kind of laugh about that. Oh, yeah. But... Should we be laughing about that? You know, their whole advertising campaigns, what happens here stays here. So take that and then turn the dial up to 11 out of 10 and you have Corinth. In fact, I don't know if I have enough time or not, but we'll go there anyway. Uh, In one of Paul's letters to Corinth, he writes to a church that would be established here. Because the good news, fast forwarding through the end of the story here a little bit, is that some people do hear Paul's message and they believe. And a church, a mighty church, a thriving church begins in Corinth. They'll be close to Paul's heart for the rest of his life. He writes back and forth to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I wonder if you've heard this passage. He's writing these words that you're about to hear to the Christians at this church, in this city, in the middle of this environment. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusers or who cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how would that sound in the ears of a Corinthian Christian? You've just talked about and described everybody who lives in my city. And you've not skipped over anybody. But he continues in verse 11. Some of you in the church were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. 
You were made. In other words, he doesn't say, you figured out how to clean yourself up. He says, you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. He's saying, don't write off your city because some of you were just like them until you met Jesus. Nobody's too far gone, church. Nobody's too far gone. And in this city, they were unapologetically given over to hedonism and sexual sin. And yet this is where God sends Paul. And he goes in there by himself, but he meets two people. Do you remember them? Their names rhymed. What are the names? Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife. They play a valuable role for us today because it's probably the most detail we get about any New Testament marriage, to be fair. Name another married couple in the New Testament and how much we know about them. Can you think of some? A married Christian couple. What do we know? You got um, Peter, right? We don't know much about him other than his mother-in-law got sick. We don't know much about his marriage. How about... uh, Goodness, who else do we have? Oh, Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about them. Yeah, go back and listen to that podcast or read back a few chapters. They were believers. They had a troubled marriage, maybe. Difficult relationship with Jesus. Um, We have Priscilla and Aquila, and we'll learn a lot about them. They arrive in town as religious refugees who are being deported because of their ethnicity. Question is, how did they meet Paul? It says Paul became acquainted with them, and it says they shared a trade. We also know that Aquila and Priscilla were Jews. What does that all have to do? There's two ideas about how they met, and it doesn't really matter which one you pick, but there's two different theories. One says they met in the marketplace. Paul comes to town, and he finds Priscilla and Aquila, who share the same trade, and there's a good chemistry there. They make a quick connection. They find out they have a lot of things in common. Um, They know Italy. Uh, Paul's from Tarsus, right? He's a Roman citizen. Uh, They share the same trade. They have the same faith, and so it's possible that they met in the marketplace, and then that translated into their relationship in the synagogue. There's another theory that says maybe they met in the synagogue first, and why would that happen? Well, back in the day in the synagogue, there was assigned seating, kind of like what we have here today. The earlier you get here, you get a seat in the back. The later you come, unless you're the Deannas and Mandy, you get seats. I see you brought your husband with you this week in the second row. I know. You didn't know this was part of the deal, did you, Uncle Mike? No, no. He's, he's, I know. And now that I called you out, it might not even happen the next week. But in the, in the synagogues, the men sat on one side of the room and the women sat on the other side. Some of you would love that. Some of you would hate that. I <laughs> heard That's right. <laughs> But even, on, even then, within your side of the room, you sat together with people of your same trade. And so it's very possible that Paul, as he's attending the synagogue, and probably sitting among the tent makers and the other craft and artisanal people, might have made a connection with him too. It doesn't really matter in what order that it happened. What we know is that here in Corinth, Paul and his Christian community finds lifelong friends. As a matter of fact... Next week, we'll read about when Paul leaves Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla pack up their business and go along with him. When you read one of the last things that he wrote in the letter to the Romans, years after this, he also writes to the Romans about Priscilla and Aquila, who he says are my co-laborers in the faith and are people who have risked their necks for the gospel. just want to leave a simple application statement with you here. 
and it's this one. The Christian community is a wonderful place to form lifelong friendships. I am not suggesting that the Christian community is the only place you can find friends. That's not true. I have friends that have been, I wouldn't say necessarily lifelong, because the amount of times that I moved as a kid, I didn't often get to keep, this was before email and stuff, so it was harder once you moved to maintain friendships. And then, of course, Facebook, I found some, and then I left Facebook two years ago, so they don't know what's going on with me. But anyway, I mean, you know, it, it's a, it takes work to maintain those kinds of friendships. Um, I have some very meaningful friendships with people who don't share my faith with me. And I enjoy my time with them greatly. Uh, I mean, my buddy Brian from Reading, um, I enjoy, I get to hang out with him every Friday and we, we love sports and we like collecting the same things and we do similar, we both have, you know, we both have a tent making part of our job and then we have, you know, our, our, our full-time job. And, um, but when it gets into the topics of faith and, you know, the little bit that I've been able to probe there and so there, there's a respect there, but they, we don't share, we don't share that. And, there's just certain areas of my life he's not able to encourage me in because he doesn't share that. He's not able to talk about all those things and speak into those areas. I will say, though, that the four of the five men that are my lifelong friends, Beardy, so named because he has a beard. Um, he calls me Baldy, so you can see where that relationship goes. Um, you know, Josh, Zach Martin, you know, and one of them lives in Alabama, one lives in Georgia, one lives in North Carolina and spends half his year overseas. These are all people who share faith with me, and I found all these friendships inside the Christian community. The Christian community is a great place to find and form lifelong friendships. These are the friendships that will encourage you. They can bring you courage, and they can bring you comfort. And Paul definitely needed some resources when he came to Corinth. He needed a job. He needed money. He needed a place to preach. God also knew he needed friendships. And so I do want to encourage you looking inside the Christian community and being open to, I know it's weird to talk to adults about how to make friends, but I feel like sometimes we do need to talk about that because some of us, we don't know how to do that easily and it feels really awkward to us. But uh, that's why we've planned to resume things like Echo Eats and doing some of these more social type things to kind of de-weird the, the friendship process. Because it's not like, oh, well, your profile says you should be a buddy with this person. You guys exchange. That's just weird. I don't want to do that. But I know this. You and I need friends. God's idea. Because all of us have something to contribute to a friendship. And all of us at times receive the benefits of friendship. And that's not to suggest that we shouldn't and we can't form friendships outside of our faith community. But there will always be something special. There's a level that you can go to in a spiritual friendship in terms of just what you can extend and communicate to one another. So I just encourage you to have those things um, uh, just be available and open to those, to those things. Um, Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Let me, come back. let me come back for a second here. All right, let's move on to the next section. Acts chapter 18, verses 7 through 11. Paul had just thrown his holy tirade, right? You with me? Okay, just making sure. I feel like I lost you all. Paul, it's just Brent. He's going to be fine. He's not going to hurt me. He's a friend, okay? <laughs> He's up here a little earlier than I was expecting, but that's fine. Um, Maybe he's telling me something. He's saying, Pastor, hurry up. Okay, we'll end on this point. Uh, Paul had just thrown his holy tirade. And what does he say? He said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I am 
going to the Gentiles. And I want you to see how far across the city he goes. Let's read verse 7. Then he left and went into the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. (laughs) He's a pretty... He's got a lot of intestinal fortitude. (laughs) I'm out of here. You'll never see me again. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'll be next door. (laughs) Oh, only God could be the author of this train wreck. So there's a guy that's a, there's a Gentile guy who lives next door, who hears Paul's message and worships God. He says, why don't you come over here and you can preach here? And so Paul is heading out the door to synagogue. He goes next door. You know who follows him? Read verse eight. This is crazy. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue. And everyone in his house also believes in the Lord. So they're like, we're out too. They go with Paul. And now what happens over the next few days and weeks? Many Others in Corinth also heard Paul. They become believers and they're baptized. Wow. So Paul comes into town. He works on the side. He gets things going. He starts preaching a little bit, runs into opposition. He's doing the Lord's work. It looks like nothing good is happening. And even in that room of hard-hearted people, what we see is there were some people in there who believed. Namely, the leader of the synagogue and his whole family believed what Paul was saying. He runs into opposition. God gives him the strength to tunnel through. He leaves. He goes next door. He starts preaching the gospel. And now there's a revival going on in the city. Dozens, probably hundreds of Corinthians are hearing the gospel out of the house of Titius Justice, where Paul is preaching. And oh, guess what? While he's preaching, he is discipling the leader of the synagogue and people of every tribe and tongue and nation are hearing the gospel. And it really looks like all the externals are business for the kingdom is booming in Corinth. You look at the naked eye. He was probably in a better financial place than he had been in months He had his team back together again. He's got old friends and new friends. He's had radical conversions. The church is exploding and growing. I want you to see things are going well. However, even though to the naked eye, it looks like Paul is in a good season of life, he's not sleeping well. Verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Why would Jesus say to Paul in a vision? Notice Paul was probably already awake. Otherwise, he would have talked to him in a dream. So it's at night. Paul's not sleeping well. And and Jesus shows up in a vision and the first words out of his mouth, don't be afraid. Why would Jesus tell anybody not to be afraid? I heard it. Because they're afraid. Jesus does not waste words. When the angels show up to the shepherds and the shepherd and the angel goes up to the shepherd and the angel knows I've got to get some information across to these men. What's the first thing the angel says to the shepherds? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Why did the angel say that? Because they were totally afraid. Wouldn't you be? I want you to see how disconnected This scene should look to us. All around him, Paul sees a breakthrough that followed a serious spiritual battle. The church is growing. 
Leaders are growing. He's not having to work his side job. The money from those offerings that were brought in is paying for their needs. He's got the team back together. He's not by himself. He's got old friends and new friends around him. He's preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. The church is growing. He's baptizing people. And simultaneously at night, he's so afraid he can't sleep. And Jesus needs to show up in a vision to give him a pep talk. Wouldn't you think that in this season of life, when he looks around him and everything was so good that he would be on cloud nine, then he wouldn't need this? First thing he says is, Paul, you're afraid. Don't be afraid. Then he tells him one thing to do and one thing not to do. Speak out. Now, do you know, Paul? If you're going to give Paul a pep talk, do you think he's the guy that someone needs to give? Uh, hey, buddy, I need you to be a little more bold. Don't hold back today. Give him the word. This is not that dude. He would be the guy that I think Jesus would show up like, Paul, I appreciate you, but you could dial it down a little bit. I mean, that thing the other week about your blood's on your own head, like that, I mean, I see where you were going, but maybe not the approach to use. But he says, speak out, don't be silent. You know what that means? Paul, God knew, Paul was still holding back a little bit. He'd become a little more hesitant, a little more reserved. Don't be silent. That's the last thing I think of Paul. Jesus saw what was going on in Paul's heart, that he was afraid, that he was hesitant. He was. Now, what in the world would he be afraid of? I don't know. I don't know what he was afraid of. It's not that hard to think of. He could have been afraid that these kind of enemies that he made next door in the synagogue, they literally were next door. He still saw them almost every week, I'm sure. Almost every Sabbath, he's seeing these people. He's probably thinking, there is unresolved issues here, and I... You know, maybe they're going to mount some type of offensive and shut us down. Maybe he was, he was afraid of just how dark the city was, and at some point just the sin of that city would just swallow up his ministry. Maybe he was looking at his bank account and saying, you know what, things were good a couple weeks ago, but every week, you know, it's dwindling down just a little bit, and I can't really think about going back and doing my tent making because if I do that, who's going to lead the church? But if I keep leading the church and we don't build out the same, how am I going to live in payment? I don't know where he was with all of this. Maybe he's just afraid of failing. Maybe he's just thinking, I don't, all these new people are coming in and we're growing so fast. We don't have enough leaders here because it's just brand new Christians. They can't lead each other. I don't know what he was afraid of. But God knew he was afraid and his fear was impacting his focus on his ministry. And it was making him pursue with a little bit less passion the work God put in front of him. So he shows up and says, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. And he gives him a reason why. Verse 10, for I am with you. Friend, that needs to be a statement that settles you. You need to come to a place in your spiritual walk where if God can just remind you he's with you, then you're good. Because that shows what you really believe about who he is. I'm at that place in my walk. Because there's a lot of times I'm like, God, is this something you want me to push through? Or is this your sign that I need to walk away? I need to know you're with me. Because I don't mind going out on the limb as long as you're with me on that limb. But I am not about to climb another limb that I decide to climb and get out there and find out you didn't tell me to climb that limb. I need to know you're with me. And he adds on to that, no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. He's not saying no one will ever attack you. What he's saying is that when people attack you, they won't harm you. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Have you heard that? You know what that means? Weapons will be formed against you. You know what they won't do? 
prosper. He says, because there's many people in the city that belong to me. You know what that means? God is foreshadowing. He's saying, Paul, I know that as soon as the gospel gets to the ears of thousands of other people in the city, they're going to say yes to relationship with me. They're going to they're open up their hearts for salvation. I need you not to be afraid. I need you to get the word out, and I need you to not be silent. I'm with you. You're on the right track. You're where I want you to be. You're going to get attacked. No one will harm you. So Paul stayed there. How effective was this vision? He stayed there how long? A year and a half. Has Paul ever stayed anywhere that long? No. Because usually when this type of opposition comes up, God shows Paul it's time to move on. But in this city, God comes to him and says, I know your track record and my pattern might show you that when this type of opposition comes up, it's a sign you should change jobs, you should cut off a friendship, you should stop working on your marriage, you should cut bait on the house and buy a new one, you should trade in the car and get it. I know you followed this pattern with me, but I want you to know that's not always the outcome I desire. Sometimes I will move you on, but other times I will pull you through. Verse 12. Did I give you verse 12? Is it in there somewhere? It's not in there? Okay. That's the sign of the Lord. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, let's back up because I can't go that far today. My bad. We'll back up to this one. Let me give you just an application point. Can you, hey, Brent, can you play pretty music for me now? Okay. He's, he's, Brent, can you play some pretty music for me now? Oh, no, you're good. Can you, can you, can you play now? It was a really good point. Okay, oh, wow, okay, I'm, I'm more shocked than you are. <laughs> Here's the application point. God will let us know when it's time to endure and when it's time to move on. That's what Paul needed to know. God, are the things that I'm afraid of and the boulders in my way and the opposition that I'm facing and things not falling in the right place and all the tension, all the anxiety, are these signs that it's time for me to move on to another city? Are you done with me here? Or is this an indication that you need me to dig in and press in and endure? Friend, if you've not come to a crossroad like that in your life, you will. You will come to a place in your job. You'll come to that place in a relationship or in a marriage. You'll come to that place with your kids. You'll come to that place with money, with houses, with apartments, with cars, with friendships, where you're saying, I'm at a crossroad here where things aren't going according to plan. I'm not at peace. I have unrest. And even though my eye test says everything's okay, I'm, I don't know, is this something I'm supposed to press through? Or is this God's sign to move on? And sometimes it looks exactly the same. Sometimes it's a boulder in the road and that exact boulder says, that's God dropping the boulder there saying, all right, move on. That's not the job for you anymore. I've got a new assignment for you. Other times the same exact boulder drops in the way and God says, all right, let's dig in. Don't move on, let's endure. And you're like, but I don't know if you've ever been through this. Every time I get to a crossroads like this in my life and I'm not sure, God, is this something you want me to press through or avoid or move away from? I try and search for the scripture. I'm a literalist. I want to find like this one rule, this one law that says, if condition A is present, then endure. If condition B is present, then move on. And it's just not quite that neat. Here's what I know. I know if you walk close to Jesus and you want to hear his voice, and you will listen to him, he will tell you the difference of when to press through and when to move on. 
And if he tells you to press through, I also know about this, Jesus, he'll tell you how. And usually he's going to give you two lists. He's going to give you a you list and a God list. The you list are things that are possible for you to do with God's help. The God list are things that are not for you to do. They're his things to do. If it's on my list, it's possible. If it's on my list, it is not impossible. However, if it's on God's list, it's impossible. And no matter how late at night I stay up or how much strategizing I do, how many books I read, I can't fix it. Here's Paul's list. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Speak out. That's what he was supposed to do. Are those things hard? Sure. But in Christ, he could and did do all those things. He stopped being consumed with fear. He doubled down on doing his work. I'm going to preach even more passionately, more effectively, more frequently. I'm going to do more ministry. And I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to go silent. I'm going to speak out. Then God said, here's my job. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to take responsibility that anytime an attack is formed, it will not harm you. And in fact, the very next section we get to, Luke gives us an example of how God could be trusted. So where are you at in your God story today? Because you'll see God stories like this all over the Bible. Someone starts to work for the Lord. They start making progress. Then there's opposition. There's an obstacle. And then God mounts a counteroffense and a counterattack. And he brings you through that battle into a new season of breakthrough. You see that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible. Where are you today? Are you doing the Lord's work? If you're not, you need to stop doing you work. You work and do his. Are you experiencing opposition to the Lord's work in your life? Then do you need to endure or move on? Are you in that battle right now? You're trying to figure out if this is the place for you to work. You're trying to figure out what to do about your marriage, about a kid you're having difficulty with. You're trying to figure out what to do. And there's a major financial decision in your life. There's a relocation opportunity, whatever it might be. Something going wrong in your physical body. And you're not sure, is this something you're supposed to endure or is something you're supposed to move on? Ask him. He will tell you the difference between the two. And he'll tell you how to do And he'll also differentiate your lists. There are possible things that you can do. And then there's impossible things you've got to leave to him. You can trust him to work on his list. We're usually working on the wrong list. We're not doing the things we can do and we should do. And we're focused on doing the things we can't do that only God can do. He's the God of the impossible. That's not us. I'm impressed that he's the God of the possible, but I can do some, there's things I can do on that list too. He's the God of the impossible. I need to stop working on his list. That's where you get the peace like Paul had. Now, here's the other thing. You might even be in a season where you look around you and everything is booming and it looks good. And yet, if you're honest, you're drained. You fought so hard in the spiritual battle of your life to get to this point that now that things are good, you're still having trouble sleeping because you're just not fully at rest in Jesus. You're depleted from the battle, you're scared. You're afraid. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Some of us grew up in churches where it was like, thank God I got a blessing, but I better be prepared because after every blessing comes a big test. You can't even enjoy what God's doing because you think it's all yin-yang. God gives me a blessing and then he sends me an invoice and it's a trial. And then I pass the trial and then he rewards me with another blessing. That's not what the Bible teaches. (laughs) You know, I look around Echo and this passage speaks to me because I was able to share with our board I was like, look, we looked at our 
And look at what God's done here over the last 24 months. More salvations in 24 months, more salvations in 12 months than at any other period in our history. Any other period in our history. So many men, women, boys, and girls, and students being saved. We've baptized more people in the last 12 months than at any point in our history. We've launched more ministries in those last 12 months than at any point in our history. In the last 12 months, we've launched Celebrate Recovery. We've launched, uh, over the last two years, we've launched Resonate too. We've opened up, it'll be three new kids' environments on Sunday. We're, we've started new ministries to men and to women. We've given more money to missions over the last 12 months than at any point in our history. At any point in our history. Attendance-wise, for the first time in our history, we're ministering to over 300 people a week. That's triple what it was before COVID. And you look around, you're like, we get pumped up and excited about this. The testimonies that we hear, there's only one area in all of the numbers that is moving in the other direction. And that's giving. And, you know, when it was one month or two months, but now it's been 11 months or 12 months where our attendance is going up, salvations are happening, new ministries are started, but our giving is going down month after month after month after month. And so it can lead a pastor or boards or leaders to say, God, what are you doing here? Show us, show us your will here. What is it that you would have us do? Give us the pep talk, right? And what Jesus has very clearly said to us is pretty much echoed here. Keep doing the, minister, the work of the ministry that I've called you to do. And he's given us some practical things to do too. One of them was be transparent with the family about the need. I was like, but God, I don't, I don't like how it feels because I've never as your pastor in 10 years had to ever say what I just said. But I also feel like I can just say it to you and as a family, our ears open up. The reality is, yes, during COVID, some people retired, some people moved, some people found new churches, but three times the number of people that have left have come in and are with us today. Praise God for that. At the same time, there is a reality that we've built up some reserves and have been using those reserves to help resource our operating budget. We've reduced every possible line item that we can to sharpen our pencils Um, There's some things you can't reduce. Rent is not something you negotiate month after month. You can't call BGE and be like, you know what? We'd like to pay a third of what we're currently paying to turn the lights on. Um, Fixed costs are what they are. You people understand that because that's the reality of our lives too. But I'm just coming to you today and say thank you to each and every one of you who have been faithful in your giving to this church. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm also appealing to those of you that haven't started your giving journey yet. I just want to be clear. Part of being a disciple is giving to the Lord, giving of our finances, both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach we give first. God comes first. In the New Testament is very clear that the local church is the place we give, not exclusively, but first. And the data shows that with, with our growth, we should be able to more than overcome this financial season and keep moving forward together. And so I'm simply asking you to spend some time talking with Jesus and anybody else in your house who has a say and what your budget looks like about your giving journey and your faithfulness to your church family. Because how are we going to get through this? We're going to pray through this. We're going to give through this and we're going to double down and keep doing ministry. That's just what we're going to do. And he is the great shepherd. And even if our giving increased by 20% this year, wouldn't close the gap. And that's a huge number. So God's going to have to surprise us, right? There's like, here's the amount of money we can cut. Here's the amount of money that we think we can give extra. And then there's still a leftover amount. And we're calling that the God box. (laughs) 
You're putting God in a box. Well, not literally. I want to bring this to you because we're going to be in this together because if only six of us know this, then when the victory comes, only six of us are excited about it. I want you to know where we are. But I want you to look around you and say, look at the work that God is doing. You know, it's kind of like Paul. Look around you. We're growing. Awesome things are happening. Why would God decide to just forget about us now? He's not going to. But I want you to be part of that together with us. This morning, we're going to do something as a family. We're going to enjoy communion together. Team, will you come prepare to serve us? Worship team, will you come and return to the platform? We're going to receive communion together. And one of the things that it says in 1 Corinthians that we're supposed to do before we receive communion is to examine our hearts. That just simply means this. We just pause for a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to show us our sin. Anything we've not laid before the Lord and asked, we've confessed it to him. We've repented from him. We've received forgiveness for Jesus. For That's what we're asking the Holy Spirit to show us right now. And if you're outside of God's kingdom and you want to come into God's kingdom today, my simple questions are this. Do you think, do you believe you need to be saved? Do you believe you've sinned and you've fallen short and you can't, you're incapable of living the life, the good life you know you should live? Second question. Do you believe Jesus can save you? Do you really believe, truly believe that he is the only one who lived a perfect life and loved you enough to exchange his perfect life for your sinful one. And the way that he exchanged it was he voluntarily took your punishment and he took that assignment on himself. Our sin deserves death and separation from God. He said, I'll step in and take your punishment for you. And he did that when he died on the cross. Do you believe he will save you? He rose from the dead. He's alive today. He made sure that the message, the true news of what he did got to your ears this morning. Do you believe that if you called to him, he will save you? If you believe in those things, and you can pray a simple prayer right now that just says, Jesus, save me. And he will. He sees your heart. He knows what you believe. He sees your heart. And he sees if you're genuinely surrendering to his lordship. And he hears your confession. You say, Jesus, save me. Same prayer Peter prayed. Jesus, save me. Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. And when you pray that prayer, God hears it, and he welcomes you in to his kingdom. And that's the only requirement we have to have to come to God's table, to his family table. It's just that we're in his family. We're brothers and sisters. So our team's coming to serve you now. We're going to pass the baskets down the aisle. They have little communion elements inside. Just take one and hold on to it. If you'd like to participate in communion, you're part of God's family, you're welcome to do so. We don't require you to be a regular attender here. Thank you, John. Require you to be a regular attender here or a a voting partner here. We just ask you to decide in your own heart, you on your own conscience, you know if you're part of God's family. And if you are, you're welcome to participate in this with us. This is something Jesus said we're supposed to do regularly as a church family to remember what he did so we never forget about it. Remember what he did on the cross through his death and resurrection. To appreciate what he's doing right now in our life and to have hope that no matter how good, bad, or boring life is right now, there is a better day coming for all of us. And that's going to be a day when we sit around one table in heaven with Jesus, with the Lord, with all our brothers and sisters throughout all history, elbow to elbow, and we have a banquet and fellowship together. That's what this reminds us of this morning. So it looks like almost everybody's been 
been served. Okay, we're just about done both sides. I will read to you what Paul wrote in Corinthians, of all places. Chapter 11 says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat of this symbol of Jesus' body together this morning. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty against sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Let's drink of the cup together, church. How many of you are glad for being saved? Yeah. Now, there's something to clap for you then in Balmer County, right? Had nothing to do with any of us. Nobody up here saved you. He did. He saved you. I couldn't save me, and you couldn't save you. He did. Not because we deserved it or begged for it. He did it because of grace. He did it because of his love for us. We're thankful for that. If you're willing and able, why don't you stand with me this morning? Our team is going to return. They'll pass those back. I'm giving them a lot to do in a short amount of time um, because we want to be able to collect those cups from you. We also want to be able to give you an opportunity to receive, to give to the Lord. We'd all like to receive the offering today, right? (laughs) We'll give you all an opportunity to pass your own hat down the aisle and collect an offering. No, we're going to give to the Lord this morning. And I know he doesn't have like a, a, you know, a checking account that you can just type in like, the, you know, the account number and the routing number. We give to him through the local church. You can give to him in other ways too. But if this is your church family, then we all have a biblical and ethical and a moral responsibility to be participants in funding the ministry of the church. And so thank you again for those who have been so faithful, so sacrificial in your giving. But I also want you to know that it's not up to you by yourself to be Jesus. We're a family. And we're all going to participate in this together because we all participate in the benefits of being in family together. So I am going to pray a prayer of blessing over this offering. Keith and the team are going to lead us in a song and then James is going to dismiss us. If you'd like prayer while we're singing and while we're receiving the offering, I'll be right down here happy to pray with you about anything going on in life. Just come down. I'll be happy to anoint you, pray with you. Heavenly Father, you're good to us. Thank you that this has been a record year, a new season of expansion of your kingdom through this church. And God, we realize there's there's one thing that doesn't seem to match up on that, but you've got that well in control and so we don't want to obsess over it but at the same time we don't want to just deny that it's there jesus we trust you to provide for the needs of this church for the needs of our ministries for the needs of those who serve here for the for the vision that we have to continue to expand this ministry lord meet those needs so that you get the credit not so that any human being gets the credit but once again we have an opportunity to see how truly great marvelous and wonderful you are We know you're with us. We know you're doing the work you've called for us to do. And so, God, we will continue to do that and trust the impossible things to you while at the same time being willing to take on the things that are possible for us to do through you. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. 
If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.